you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Praise God, Church. Good to see you again. And um, I really am um, humbled to have this topic to share. Uh, as the pastor said, it's not a popular topic, but um, uh, I am humbled as I've been preparing uh, what God has to say to us this morning about this. You know, I think it's a sad truth that you don't need to look far to find examples of scandals in the Christian church. Scandals in the Christian. I think you all know what I'm talking about. You can read them on the news or you can watch on television. Um, Members or even pastors being found out in these just unbelievable sins. Cover-ups, right? Harassment, financial crimes, fraud, abuse, sexual adultery, um, even involving children. Scandals, scandals. Um, But I think also there are less extreme examples that abound in the church. Some of those examples you may not relate with immediately, but but how about these? The perpetual liar, the person who's always lying, the person who says they're a member of the church but doesn't attend, the person with the secret addiction, the church gossip, the person who speaks about other people. The arrogant, divisive person, the person who's living a double life. You see, church, scandals abound. Whether they're extreme or less extreme, they're all around us. And the thing about scandals is, when they are exposed, unbelievers, like the watching world, they jump all over that, don't they? They can spot the hypocrisy from a mile away. Right? And you understand what they're saying, right? I mean, you had this person leading in your church, right? You had this person teaching. You had that person leading that ministry all the while they were living in, in such sin. I mean, you can get where they're coming from. I mean, it undermines everything that we profess, doesn't it? Right? It undermines. Why should anyone, think about this, why should anyone believe the gospel? What difference does Jesus make if the church and the world look the same? Right? If the church and the world look the same. I have to admit, uh, Keith knows this, that there are some worship songs that I have a hard time singing today after I discovered, you know, the artist defected from the faith or was caught in some kind of scandal. There are some books I used to recommend to people to read that I don't do it anymore because I found out the author, you know, was caught in some serial sex abuse case. And I know what you're thinking, um, you know, are we supposed to cancel everyone because they're a sinner? Right? I mean, some of you maybe, I know you're not, you're not doing anything with your heads, but maybe you're thinking this, right? You're looking at me, you're thinking, hang on a second, becoming a Christian doesn't mean that we stop what? Sinning. That's not what, what, what we're saying. When we, like, as Christians, we're supposed to sin 
less and less, but we are not sinless. Right? We know that. And if that's what you're saying, well, I have to admit to you, I have to tell you, you're right. You're absolutely correct. But I'm trying to highlight for you the complexity of this issue. Sin in the church. Um, Scandals in the church. You know, I would even go so far as to say that what might be scandalous for one of you may not be as scandalous for someone else. Okay, now, now follow me here. During the fellowship time, when we go to fellowship, let's say you're having a conversation with someone who is a new believer. And during that conversation... By accident, they drop a, a curse word, right? Now, now, that's different, isn't it, than if one of the elders got up here on the pulpit and we did the same thing. That's different, isn't it? Right? Those sins are judged differently. There's more severity, right? That's how Jesus treated the Pharisees and the Levites. They were held to a higher standard. They knew better. They should have known better. And so this is a very complex issue And I'm saying all of this to get us ready for the topic, which is church discipline. Can everyone say that with me? Church discipline. Church discipline. And what I mean by that is this. How Jesus Christ commands us, the church, to discipline one another when we sin. Okay? That's the big topic. How does Jesus Christ command us, the church? To discipline one another when we sin. And this is not an easy topic, but, but I would argue, and I think you would appreciate this, that we all know why this is necessary to talk about. Right? Like we all know, you, you can appreciate. If, if as a father, if I withhold discipline from my little son, I am failing him as a parent. You get that. Right? We all, it's not loving for me to withhold discipline from my child. So we can appreciate why this is an important topic to, to discuss, but, but it's not easy. None of you woke up this morning and thought, you know what, I can't wait to get to church so I can be disciplined. Right? Did anyone do that? No. Right? None of us are looking forward to getting called out. Right? Publicly accountable, held accountable for your sins. That's not what we, any of us in our pride wants this morning. But what we are examining comes from the very lips of Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. The head of the church. How we are to discipline one another. And my prayer is that we would, as we prayed, we would let go of our pride. I needed to do that this week. I still need to do it today. And I pray for each of us that we would let go of our pride and we would humble ourselves and repent. Repent of our sin, that we can be reconciled to God. We can be reconciled to one another so that God would look down and be pleased with us. Come on, don't you want that? No one? Anyone? Even a single person here, don't you want that? For God to look down and be pleased with the church. That the the world would see the light of the gospel through our witness. So with that in mind, we come to our text this morning. If you can turn there in your Bible, Matthew 18. Matthew 18. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the the seat in front of you. You're going to need it. Matthew 18. We're looking from verses 15 to 17. As you turn there, let me just um, preface this to say, um, 
I think there are two errors when it comes to church discipline. On the one hand, a church can completely neglect to discipline anyone, right? I don't want to confront anyone. I don't want to make it uncomfortable, right? It's awkward. Let's just ignore it altogether, right? That's one error, right, of of not disciplining anyone for anything in a church. But the other error on the other side, I think, is, is the opposite. It's where you're always disciplining with harshness, so much harshness that, that it lacks grace, right? It lacks grace. And so I think it's important that before we look at the text that, we, that was read to us, these words on church discipline, I want you to look at the words that come just before Jesus says all of this, okay? Look at your Bible at, from verse 12. Jesus shares a parable that colors how we are to interpret church discipline, okay? It gives you the heart of God behind church discipline, and I don't want you to miss this, because if you miss this, you miss the entire point, the whole purpose of church discipline. Why is God asking us to do this? Starting at verse 12. Are you there? Verse 12? Anyone say amen? Amen, you're there. Verse 12. What do you think? Jesus says to his disciples, if a man has a hundred sheep, think about that, a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray, just one, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Church, this is the heart of our God. This is the heart of God. Behind discipline, it's that not one soul in this room, not one of you, would go astray. That not one of the sheep would be lost from the fold. That not one of you would perish. This is the desire of our God. So I want you to keep this picture in your mind, okay? As we go through this topic, it's a difficult topic, church discipline. But I want you to remember this picture of a shepherd leaving 99 sheep to go after the one. Of course the 99 have needs, right church? Right? If you're part of the 99, you still have needs. You're still important to the shepherd, right? But do you see the special attention that we are to give to the one who goes astray, right? The one who goes astray. Why? It's not for the joy of kicking them out. Sometimes I think people think when they hear the word church discipline, they think of let's kick people out of the church, right? Let's make this a really tight group and let's kick out those who are not like us, who are struggling. No, no, no. What is the joy of the shepherd? Look at verse 13. What's, what's, when, when does he experience the joy? When the stray sheep is, is found. When the sheep is found. When the soul returns to the, when they are restored. Right? So this is the context. Are you with me? Okay? So this is the context. As we come to this topic of church discipline, remember the purpose. The purpose it's for the one sheep who has gone astray to be restored, right? To be found. Okay, that brings us to the four steps. So Jesus has four steps that we are to follow when we exhibit or when we, when we practice church 
discipline. And the first one is this. It's in verse 15. If you can say this with me, it's one to one. Are you ready? Say it with me. One to one. Okay, that's the first step. When we go about church discipline, we begin with going at it one to one. Reading from verse 15. Are you with me? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Okay? You've gained your brother. Now, the first thing I want you to recognize is the choice of words. Jesus uses the word brother. See that? In verse 15, the word, but what does that mean? The word brother means this person is a Christian. They're a Christian. You're talking, this is, Jesus is not talking about how to resolve conflicts with your neighbors. He's not talking about how to resolve conflicts with people at work. This is about sins committed against you by Christians. By Christians, church. And you know, as I, as I, as I was preparing for this message, I got to be honest, I was thinking about some of the deepest hurts in my life have come not from unbelievers, but from believers. I'm not looking at any of you, okay? You guys are a source of joy to me. I love you guys. But I'm just telling you, right? That's, uh, some of you are nodding because you, you know that's true. It's true. But, but that, that's convicting, isn't it? Remembering that this is my brother or my sister, who's, that's convicting because think about how much time we've spent like processing church hurt. You know what church hurt is? The hurt you get at church? Like ruminating about it or like working through it and like, like the hours or the amount of energy we spend all while the world is perishing. Right? I mean, that's an effective strategy of the devil. To get the church to be so focused on hurt within us while the world is perishing. It's convicting. But this is the word Jesus uses, brother, right? What a way to start off this passage to remind you that the person who sins against you is not a stranger. We're not talking about strangers. We're talking about your own brother in the faith, your own sister in Christ. They're your family, church. They are your own family. It affects the way we should handle discipline, right? It affects the way we approach this. So step one is, Jesus tells us to go to your brother who sins against you one-on-one. -on -one. So he says, go. What he's not saying is, sit back and wait, right? Because some of us are sitting here and thinking, you know what? He did that against me. I'm not going to, he should come to me, Right? He did that to, she did that against me. I'm not going to, I'm waiting for, no, no. Jesus says, go, you go. The first step in church discipline is a step of reconciliation that you initiate. You go to that person. You go. And what do you do when you go to him? Verse 15, you talk to him. You talk to him, church. You tell him what has happened. You tell him his fault. And I can't tell you how many times this has happened to me, a brother or an accountability partner or my wife. When they come and talk to me, they tell me what I've done. Just one-on-one. Just -on -one. It's, not, it's not, you know, it's just one-on-one -on -one and saying, here's how you hurt me. Here's how you sinned against me. And you know what? I got to be honest. There are many times that I was not even aware of what I had done. 
I'm not saying this to make me look any better. I'm just saying that's, that's reality. That Sometimes I think we assume people are malicious against us in the church. People are intentionally trying to get me or trying to hurt me by what they did. You know, they took the last piece of cake in the fellowship hall. Didn't they know I didn't have breakfast? I was hungry. I was waiting for that piece of cake. Come on. Right? I mean, there's so much going on in people's lives. You don't know what's going on in someone else's life. Why they forgot your birthday. Why they did this. Why they said that. You don't know. And, but I think we assume that people are malicious against us. It's not true. Especially when we're talking about Christians, church. It's just not true. It's not true. That's not how we live. The problem is, if we don't, if we're not able to forgive, if you're not able to forgive someone from your heart, Jesus is telling us here, do not sit in bitterness. That's what happens, right? I'm, I'm going to wait till they come to me. I can't believe they forgot or, they, or they're not doing anything about what they did against me. I'm going to sit here in bitterness. And what happens? Resentment starts to grow, right? And then what do we do? We start to act passively, a passive aggression. You know what passive aggression? The kids call it ghosting. Have you heard of ghosting anyone? Ghosting. You're laughing because some of you know, right? Ghosting. When all of a sudden, it goes silent. No, one is, they're not, no one's talking back to you. The cold, uh, silent treatment, right? You're talking to everyone else except for the one person who hurt you. That's not how it should be. That's not how Jesus commands us to be as a church. We are to go. If your brother or sister sins against you and you can't forgive them from your heart, you go and talk to them. You talk to them. And look at verse 15 again. It is between you and him alone. Right? Do you know what that means? It means discretion, church. It means discretion. This is not um, a broadcast to the spectators, right? Shame on us when we do that. This is one-on-one. This is one-on-one. And the goal in verse 15, what's the goal? If he listens to you, you have done what? You have gained your brother. It's not about venting your grievance. I think sometimes we think that way. I'm going to go tell him because he needs to know what he did against me. That's not the purpose. The purpose of the steps of church discipline is not so you can vent your grievance. It's not so that you can win the arguments. It's not even so that you can exert your rights. What is the purpose? It's to gain your brother. It's to gain the relationship again. There's been a a distance you're trying to gain again. And I can tell you, I've been on the receiving end of this several times, that how sweet it is, church, to just listen, repent, and gain that relationship back. I told you some of my deepest hurts have come from Christians. I can also tell you some of my deepest joys, my deepest relationships are here in this room. My deepest community and love and forgiveness and, and, and belonging is in this room. It's you because of this. Because of this. You know, when it says, if he listens, it's, 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 a, it's a message to each of us not to justify. What do we do? The first time someone comes to you with something you've done, what do you do? You defend or you give the excuses or God forbid you lash out. Well, you did this against me, right? No, no. He says just to listen. To listen to the person who is hurt. Listen to the person so that you can gain that relationship again. Right? 
And so this is the first step that Jesus gives us in terms of discipline. When you're hurt, when sin has been committed against you by a Christian, we forgive. But if you can't forgive, you're having a heart. The first step is to go to that person, to tell them what they've done. And in love, with gentleness, so that that relationship would be restored. Okay, are you with me? The first step, everyone, yeah, I've got some convicted faces or some sleepy faces. I don't know. Maybe it's a bit of both. I'm not sure, but we'll keep going. That's the first step. If the first step works, praise God. And I hope that as a church, we never have to move past that first step, right? It'll just be one-to-one. No one's the wiser outside of that circle. And the person is restored and, and the relationship is gained. But Jesus knew that there will be times where, where that first step will not be enough. And so he says in verse 16, he gives us a second step. And so the first step was one-on-one. The second step, if you can say it with me, is with witnesses. You say it? With witnesses. With witnesses. Let's go to verse 16. Verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay? Now, if that sounds like a courtroom, it's intentional. Okay? Jesus is actually um, uh, referencing here. Look at your Bible. I don't know if you have a footnote there or, or a superscript that directs you to Deuteronomy 19.15. Do you see that? He, he, he's referencing an Old Testament principle. I want to show you this, Deuteronomy 19. This is from the Old Testament. Here's what it says. A single witness, one person, shall not suffice. And look at this, against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Think about how comprehensive that is, right? There's just no way. One witness is not enough. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three can a charge be established. You understand what's happening, right? In step one, if you can't resolve the the issue, it becomes a he said versus she said situation, right? It's one person's word against another. And so what Jesus says here in step two is to bring one or two people along with you so that every charge is established. If anything, if nothing else, I want you to understand from this the seriousness of sin. When you're accusing someone of sinning against you, when you're charged, that's serious, right? It's not something we can take lightly. And that's why Jesus says, You should have witnesses. You should bring people along. So the circle who knows about the sin now is moving from one to one, and now we're adding one or two more people, right? Remember, this is not a, uh, it's still discreet, right? Only three, four people know about it by by now. This is not, if if, if you talk to the person one-on-one and they don't listen to you, that doesn't mean go and blast them to the choir, right? That's not what we're doing. We're now bringing one or two people along with us. Now, the question you may have is, who do I bring with me, right? Who do I bring with me? Well, it's not stated in verse 16, but wisdom and prudence would say that the one or two people that you bring along, the witnesses, should be mature believers. Does that make sense? Should be mature believers that you bring into the situation. And at SCF, as a church, um, It's at this point that we would counsel you that this is where you should bring the elders into church discipline. This is where you should bring the elders. If you can't resolve it one-to-one, we would counsel you to bring elders into this process. And let me tell you, this step can take a very long time. 
okay? This can take a very long... As elders, there are some elders here in the room. We're all here. Um, they can testify, they can attest to this, that we have met for hours upon hours of meetings in this step. All because of you, right? You, the, the, the sheep, right? <laughs> no, I'm not accusing you, but that's the reality, right? We are, because, because taking sin, charges of sin, must be done very seriously. Can't be done lightly. And the reason it takes so long to work through this step is because none of us has x-ray vision to see a person's heart. That's the problem. That's what makes this step so challenging. It's not the sin, okay? To figure out if someone has committed a sin is very easy. You look at the Bible. The Bible is clear. If the law has been broken, God's law has been broken, a sin has been committed, that's not the hard part, right? And we've all sinned. I said that from the beginning. Whether it's a seasoned pastor or a new believer, or if you're an atheist this morning, you just came in and you're watching, you're watching online, we all have sin. Sin is not what distinguishes Christians from non-Christians. Sin is not the distinguisher. What is the distinguisher? Repentance. What you do when you are confronted with sin shows us if you're a Christian or not. It's not sin itself. It's how you respond when you are confronted with sin. Are you repentant? Like, are you truly sorry? Are you sincere? This is, this is the part that is not easy, that's not a quick thing to discern. As elders, we will spend time praying, asking God, God, give us discernment in this case, right? Or we'll be watching carefully a person's life to see, is there fruit in keeping with repentance? Is there fruit of their, of their life? Because I want you to understand, it's easy to say sorry, right? Are there any husbands in the room who can attest to this? Right, your wife comes to you and says, you know, here's what you did, and you say, I'm sorry. Have you, no one is, said, come on, please, someone, anyone else? It's easy to say sorry, right? You may not, but, but, but she knows. You don't understand the gravity of what you've done with the dishes or with the whatever the thing is, right? You don't know, but, but it's easy to say it. The question is, do you really feel remorse for the sin you've committed? I want to give you an example if, or, or, or a picture here. If a murderer, a murderer came to you today and they said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I did. I'm sorry for murdering the person I murdered today. And you say, okay. And then tomorrow, the same murderer goes out and with the same weapon, murders someone else. Okay? Let's say that happened. God, thank God our justice system is not that bad. But let's say that happened. What would you conclude? Did you really feel sorry? Did you really mean it? When you said, did you really understand the gravity of what you did yesterday? Why would you even keep the weapon? Wouldn't you ask that? Why would you even keep the same weapon if you understood the gravity of what you had done? What am I saying? You say you're a Christian. We say that we're repentant. There should be tangible steps. There should be fruit. There should be evidence that you're trying to change. You're trying to get rid of that. Okay, I'm struggling with pornography. I'm struggling with this. Get rid of it. Are you taking steps? Are you getting an accountability partner? Are you, are you putting limits on your internet access or for your kids? What are you doing? What are the steps to put to death the habitual sin? Because otherwise, church, the question we have is, do you recognize how serious this is? 
what you've done or what you're doing against a holy God? Do you really understand the gravity of what you've done? Or are you resisting the Holy Spirit? That's the tricky part. Are you, are you unwilling to make the changes you know you need to make? You know you need to make it, but you're not willing to make the changes. Why? Because you don't believe this is that big a deal. That's why. That's why. We don't say it that way. But when we don't take sin, sin seriously, what we're saying is, I don't think my sin issue is that big a deal. That's what we're saying. Put another way, what we're saying is, I don't really agree with God about my sin. Wages of sin is death, right? You guys would do anything you can today to try to protect yourself from death, wouldn't you? Right? When you're driving, when you're walking on the ice, you do everything. But, but somehow with sin, we don't realize that. I don't really agree with God that this sin is going to lead me to death. I love this quote from John Owen. He got it. He says this. He says, you guys have heard this before from the pulpit, but be killing sin or, anyone know? Or sin, yes, will be killing you. He got it. John Owen, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's one or the other. Either the sin is going to kill you or you're going to kill the sin. It doesn't go any other way. There's no other outcome. That's how serious sin is. And so, church, this is the second step. The second step in church discipline, you try one-on-one, -on -one, and then you bring the elders or the, or the witnesses into it. If you want a great book in our library, um, um, Jonathan Lehman from Nine Marks has a book on church discipline I found very helpful. And he posed it this way, and I love this, and I'm giving credit to him because, you know, sometimes we come at each other as though the person is guilty until they're proven innocent. Right? We come swinging, full swing, right? Like accusations, like you did this, I know you did it, and I know you're, you did it on purpose, and you meant to hurt me. That's how we come, right? Accusations first. But what he's reminding me in, in, in my study is Jesus is referring to courtroom because courtrooms are not like that. Charges, witnesses, courtrooms don't work. They, they begin with you're innocent until proven guilty. You give the benefit of the doubt. Right, church? Beloved, we are in a church family. You give the benefit of the doubt. You don't assume right away the person is malicious against you, intentionally trying to hurt you. Maybe they're going through something. Maybe there's some health issues. Maybe there's some uh, identity issues. I think about even the gossip. People get so angry about gossip. Yes, gossip is a sin. Let gossip not be found in our church. But you know what? Sometimes people who gossip are very insecure. Do you know that? They're very insecure about something in their own life. That doesn't excuse the sin. But the point that he raises here is questions should precede accusation. I love that. Questions precede accusations. You're trying to understand, hey, you did this. What's going on? Is something, are you okay? Is everything okay at home? How, how's your work? Oh, you're going through this stress. Okay. Uh, that's how we start. Trying to understand the wayward sheep. Maybe they didn't know any better. Maybe they thought it was okay and they did it. And, and so we're trying to teach the wayward sheep. We're trying to be patient with them, prayerful with them, right? We're trying to show love and care all in the hopes that they would listen and repent. 
that they would listen and repent. Which brings us to the third step. Third step. Look at verse 17, if you can, in your Bible. Verse 17. If the first two steps are not, uh, do not come to fruition, step three, Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. So you understand, if step two doesn't work, right? If the two or three witnesses, if the elders in, in our case, are unable to get through to that brother or sister who's living in sin, Jesus says, it's time to get more people involved. Right? Because up until now, if you look back, steps one and two, it's only been a few people. We've really kept this, right? It's, we've used utmost discretion, and as little people as necessary know about this Sin, But in step three, Jesus empowers every regenerated member of his church, every one of you who's truly saved. And I'm being very careful what I'm saying here because I'm not talking about everyone here in this room necessarily, right? Because when we gather as a church, there are unbelievers, there are Christians watching online, you know, so this is not the setting I'm talking about. I'm talking about the truly saved. If you're truly a repentant, believing Christian, a member of the church, you are encouraged by Jesus to get involved. And what does that mean? It means that you are to speak to this person. It's not just for you to know, oh, wow, so-and-so is in that sin issue. No, no, no. It's for you, the believing member, to speak to that person. So that after you speak to her, or you speak to him, or you speak and you speak, and after all these conversations, conversations upon conversations, loving rebukes and correction, that by somehow this person, this, this sheep that's gone astray, would come back. That's the goal, right? By all of these loving conversations that the person would come back. And if you're like me, and you're reading that or hearing that, you may, be, you may think to yourself, now that's a very, that feels like a very awkward thing that Jesus is asking us to do, right? To talk openly, publicly about someone's personal sin, right? And so what, what we must remember is this is to be done with the utmost care. This, this, this step this is not about divulging specifics. This is not about, you know, bringing even more shame or embarrassment to anyone. This is not to be shared with unbelievers. That's why I said it can't happen on a Sunday morning. We would never do it on a Sunday morning. If you look at other churches, how they practice this step, if they have to, they have it only at a member's meeting. Okay? You only have the, the baptized members in good standing are present. That's when you share this information. Or other churches will do it through individual conversations. Right? The elders may meet with you as a member and say, hey, this person is struggling with this sin. Please meet with them. The point is, however we tell the church, the point is the same. In verse 17, it's so that you, the church, can pray for the person and then go and meet with them. That's the point. That you would take them out for coffee, invite them to your home, give them a meal, and lovingly talk to them. Encourage them with grace and with truth in the hopes that if they don't listen to, to one person or to the elders, they will listen to you. They will listen to you, the church. 
What a, what a, what a, what a responsibility, right? Isn't it a responsibility, church, that Jesus is giving to each one of us as the church? You see, I want to say something. People are watching you, okay? Not in a creepy way. I mean it in a different way. There are people in this church who are younger in their faith, right? There are people in this church who are just growing. We're all growing, but they're just growing in their faith. They're just starting to understand the gospel and understand the Bible. And for those, those sheep, we do not want them to see a person in unrepentant sin and think that that's okay. The purpose of telling the church about sin in the church is so that younger believers, the weaker sheep, will not stumble. That none of us will stumble. That's why we are called to speak of sin, to speak and call out sin in the flock. You know, there's one thing you should know about SCF. Um, we are not perfect. I don't know if you heard otherwise, okay? Rumors. I don't know who started them, but we are not perfect. And um, as I tell my brother Keith repeatedly, we're not professionals. <laughs> we're not professionals. We're not doing a produ professional production up here. We're not doing a professional production up there. God bless the, the team and everything else. But I don't care if you have skills or no skills. The only criteria you need to serve at this church is repentance and faith. That's it. I don't care if you worked for whatever. Before or whatever you were in your... It doesn't matter. The skills is not the point. The skills are not the point. It doesn't matter how long you've been in church. If you don't have repentance and faith, there's nothing for you to serve. If after spe someone speaks to you one-on-one, -on -one, and then elders speak to you separately, and then the whole church speaks to you, if after all of that church, you can't repent for your sin, there's no ministry you can do for someone else. You understand that. You understand that. Because the only criteria to be in this church, the only criteria to be a member or to serve or to be a Christian is to repent and believe. Repent and believe. You have sin. Sure. I have sin. We all have sin. That's not what determines if you're a Christian. How you respond when the Holy Spirit brings that sin before you. How you respond when one-on-one -on -one with elders, the whole church opens the Bible and shows you your sin. How you respond with repentance and faith, that is what determines. That is what determines. Which brings us to the final step, the fourth step. It's a big word. And the word is excommunication. Can anyone say that with me? Excommunication. You may have heard this word before. It doesn't mean excommunicating, like stop communicating with the person. That's not what it means. It means that you are no longer in communion with the church. That's what it means. Okay, excommunication. Look at the end of verse 17. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What, what Jesus is saying is, Basically, treat him like he's an outsider. He's not a Christian. He's not part of the church. He's not a member of the church. You know, even in this last step, when you see that word even, what does that word even tell you? 
it speaks to the patience of God, doesn't it? When it says even, even the church, it speaks to God has been patient. One-on-one you were told, with witnesses, with the elders, even the church. At that point, Jesus is saying, this person is demonstrating to you that they are actually not a part of the flock. They're not. Your conscience is not moved by any of the steps, one, two, or three. How can the church, put yourself in the church's position, how can we affirm that the person is truly saved? Right? They're unable to repent. It's a very serious step. And I don't know about you, but when I first came across this passage in my faith, this was a, this is a, I, I, honest with you, I felt this is so harsh. Jesus is love. God is love, right? He's mercy. He's grace. It feels incredibly harsh, doesn't it? This judgment from Jesus to consider them as not part of the church. But I want you to understand why this is so important. Do you remember we started off today, I I told you about scandal, right? Scandals in the church, some extreme, some not, not as extreme. When we decide to no longer affirm someone is a Christian, we are actually protecting the name of Jesus. It's not about protecting ourselves, church. This is bigger than us. We are actually protecting the name and the reputation, the whole, as we sang today, that beautiful song, let the glory of your name be the passion of the church, right? We are actually protecting the name of Jesus because as long as we coddle someone in their sins, imagine one of those scandals happened here, God forbid. As long as we turn a blind eye to sin in the church, what are we doing? We are undermining. The name of Jesus. We are undermining the gospel of Jesus that we claim that we hold on to. Just think of the wrath of God, church. Think of the wrath of God, beloved, that comes upon us if we sit by and do nothing. Right? If we tolerate impurity and profane his holy house. His house. It's not our house. It's not our house. It's his church. Not to mention our witness to the watching world. What does the world conclude about Christians? That we are just a bunch of, the H word, hypocrites. Right? Whitewashed tombs. We present holy, 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 but living in these sins. But there's another reason that Jesus gives us the fourth step. And I want to show you this. We'll kind of close here. It's a very compassionate reason. Remember I told you at the beginning, not to forget the parable of the shepherd leaving the 99 to go after the one, right? And I want to show you that even in this final step, the shepherd is not done searching for that sheep. Um, 1 Corinthians 5, 5.
This is the compassion of God. Because I tell you the truth, this step, to me, feels like kicking someone out, doesn't it? It feels like saying, you know what? You're going to be in your sin, forget it, you're out. And I think if the church was up to us, we would be quick to kick people out. But I want you to see what Paul tells. He tells the church in Corinth. This church is going through a, a, a situation of church discipline. There was a man in this church who was committing this despicable sexual sin. Okay? It was public. Everyone knew about it. Okay? And they went through the steps of church discipline. This person was unrepentant of his sin. He was willing to continue in it. And they come to the fourth step, the final step, kicking him out of the church. Right, Saying, you're no longer a member of this church. But look at what Paul says. Look at what Paul says. He says, you are to, to the church in Corinth, he says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Read this with me. So that his spirit may be saved. Saved in the day of the Lord. Church, I don't know if you thought that or not, but saved. Removing someone from the privileges of church membership to save them? Can you imagine? That's not our wisdom. That's not your wisdom. That's not your plan. Taking them away, stopping to offer communion to them. This step, can you imagine that God is using that step to save someone? Because uh, i got to be honest, when I think about that, I'm like, aren't we going to risk losing them forever? Right? If we tell them, look, we can't affirm that you're a Christian anymore. You're welcome to come to church. We love you. We want to treat you as we would any other person who we're reaching out to, we're praying for. We want to see them believe. But you think, okay, if we tell them that, they're going to be so discouraged, they're going to leave, and then they're going to be lost to worldliness. That's what you think. But the wisdom of God and the providence of God is that he will use even the world. He will use even Satan. To provoke that person to come back home. To come home. To be saved, church. To be restored to the 99. It's not a shunning. We are not called to shun people. That's not what church discipline is at all. At all. I hope you never take that away from this morning. This is not, this is, we change the way you see the person. Doesn't matter how long they've been in church. Many people have been in church since they were babies, right? We learned all the Sunday school stories and everything is great. But do you really repent? Do you really believe? That only comes out when the rubber hits the road. But what we're saying here is that we see these people as though they're someone you care about. Don't you have people you care about who don't know Jesus? Of course you do. You're praying for them even every night, right? You want to see them saved? You see this person the same way. And so that one day that God would use even the devil, even this world and all its temporary fleeting pleasures to show that person how empty they are and how much they truly do need Christ. And then they're saved. So as we close, I have to say, um, the church was not your idea, right? The church was not my idea. The church was not the idea of great historical dead guys. 
The church is God's idea. And it's by his design. And it's by his word that we live. Amen. Amen. This topic of church discipline is not popular. I know that. I have a sneaking suspicion after service, I'm going to have a one-on-one with several of you, I'm afraid. But it comes from the lips of the head of the church. Not the pastors. Not the elders. The head of the church. The bridegroom of the bride. Jesus himself. How should you respond? Can I take a few, just a minute or two more? How should you respond? You know, I want to show you this. After hearing all of this, you might wonder, how am I supposed to, what am I supposed to do with this? I want to show you what the disciples did, okay? This is the first question that came to them after they heard everything Jesus said. Four steps, everything else. Look at this. Verse 21, Peter comes up. Peter's the leader, right? Peter's the leader. He comes up and he says to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? After hearing all this, okay? Here's the steps of discipline. He says, I'm the, I'm the shepherd. I'm going after the one. And Peter's, and he goes through the four steps, one-on-one with the elders or with the witnesses, tell to the church, and then, and then you, you, you don't consider them a Christian. And the question that comes to Peter's mind is, well, how many times should I go through step one with someone? Right? <laughs> That's the question he has. How many times do I have to go through this with the same brother who keeps doing the same thing? Is it seven times? Is that enough? And, and the thing you may not realize is in Judaism, three times was more than enough. Okay, that was, that was enough. Three times to forgive one person for the same thing they keep doing. So, so what Peter's doing here is actually he's trying to be generous. He takes three, he multiplies it by two, he adds one. He's like, well, seven times, is that enough? And look what Jesus said. Verse 22, I do not say to you seven times. You didn't get me, Peter. (laughs) Peter, you missed the point. I didn't say seven times, but 77 times. Some manuscripts say seven times 70. What is he saying? Is he asking you to pull out your calculator and figure out what that is? No, he's saying no scorekeeping. There's no scorekeeping in the church. There's no scorekeeping. As often as God has forgiven you, You forgive each other. You forgive each other. Just remember that the next time that you're struggling, this person has hurt me again. They did this again. And oh, I can't stand it. God, what are you going to... As often as God has forgiven you, forgive one another. For this is the mark, isn't it? This is the mark of being a true Christian. It's not... That the absence of sin in your life. It's not the absence of sin that makes you a Christian. It's the presence of repentance. It's, I'll say it again. It's not the absence of sin that makes you a Christian. But the presence of repentance. And so today, if someone approaches you, I hope you won't do it today right after service. Okay, just wait a little bit longer, please. Right? We're hungry. It's lunchtime almost. And just... If someone approaches you, church, I'm I'm saying this for, for the culture of our church, the culture we want to build. Let us not be quick to defend. Let us not be quick to defend and come up with reasons and justifications and lash out. Let us with with humility 
with a teachable spirit, a broken, contrite spirit, let us be quick to repent. To be reconciled to the person, to be reconciled to our shepherd who is willing to leave the 99, to go after that one and rejoice when that stray sheep comes home. Church, if you can stand. And worship leader, worship team, if you can come. And let us pray and ask God for his help. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for this wonderful morning you've given us to, to hear your words on a very, very difficult topic, but one that you shared with purpose and you shared for a reason. Because, Father, this church is not designed by our own great ideas or creativity or sense of empathy and compassion. This church is designed and it functions according to your commands. And so I pray, O oh God, that you will give each one of us a spirit, a 77 kind of spirit, that, that we will not keep record of wrongs, that we will be quick to forgive, especially when it comes to brothers and sisters in Christ, knowing that the watching world is perishing and we can't spend all our time working through church hurt while people are dying without the gospel. Father, help us to have a spirit that is quick to repent, quick to forgive. And Lord, even if, if, if we struggle, Lord, let us have the, 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 the wisdom, grace, and compassion to, and, and the boldness to approach our brothers and sisters with gentleness and truth to tell them one-to-one if they've heard us in the hopes that they will listen and we will gain those relationships again. Gain those relationships. And if not, Father, let us bring the elders in, the witnesses in. And if not, let us bring the church in. And if not, Father, let us have the boldness to protect your name, to protect your holy reputation in this world. Not so that we can take joy in, in being an exclusive club. No, by, not by any means. Lord, as Pastor often says, this is not a hotel for saints. This is a hospital for sinners. Lord, rather let us take joy that the same shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one is still going after that one, even after the final step. Let us have that kind of heart, O oh God the same shepherd's heart. And let us rejoice when that one comes back home. Lord, we pray for those in the church who may be struggling with sin issues, habitual sin, whatever it may be. Oh, Lord, I pray that your spirit would convict them now. If we have a grievance against one another, convict us now, Father. Let us forgive, let us repent. And if anyone, Father, is straying away from the 99, if anyone has gone far from the fold, oh Lord, we pray that you, the good shepherd, would find that sheep, that they would be restored to the fold. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.